Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for giving us your precious word. Thank you that you speak to us even now as we heard your word read. And we pray that you would continue speaking to us as we, are, as we examine it more now. We pray that you would radically challenge us again of what it looks like to live the Christian life. And we pray that each one of us would put our trust in Christ and live not for this world, but for the kingdom to come. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you blessed? Are you happy? Content? Are you living the, the good life? I think the search for blessing is a universal phenomenon. Everyone looks for blessing. You just look on Chinese New Year. What's the character that's around everywhere? It's full. Blessing. Everyone wants blessing at Chinese New Year. Now, it's not much different in the West. We endlessly search for happiness, for joy, for satisfaction as our purpose in life. So I wonder if you just went around the streets of KL this morning and you surveyed society and you asked them the question, what do you think it means to be truly happy? What does it mean to be truly blessed? And what do you think they would say? I suspect for 95% of people they would answer something like this. Uh, to be happy means to be financially secure, to have a full bank account, perhaps only a nice car, maybe a Mercedes or a condominium in Mont Chiara. You're progressing in your career. In fact, you're going so well that an early retirement is well on the cards with plenty of time for holidays in Europe or even America. Now, is that happiness? Perhaps happiness means being physically provided for. The car loan is paid, the fridge is full, there's food on the table, the health insurance is covered, you're secure, you're safe, you're happy. Is that what happiness is? Perhaps it means happiness means emotional joy, the, the kind of joy that comes from having a happy family, a, a loving spouse, the children playing inside and the dog sitting quietly in the corner waiting for her food. Is that happiness? Is that the blessed life? Perhaps it means social inclusion. Perhaps the happy person is the one surrounded by friends, surrounded by a loving family. Maybe it's the one who has a membership at the Royal Selangor Club and their special table just for them. Maybe it's the person who has that Manchester United jersey and they just belong with everyone else. Is that happiness? Is that the blessed life? Well, are you living the blessed life? Are you prospering? Are you content? Are you truly happy? Well, you would have noticed in our passage today, it tells us what the blessed life is, what it looks like to be truly happy. And Jesus' description, well, quite frankly, it is shocking, isn't it? It is the absolute, complete inverse of what our culture says. Uh, what does Jesus say there in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20? Who is the blessed person? Well, he's the person who is poor, who's hungry, who's weeping, who's rejected, who's excluded. And what about the person who is rich and full and laughing and loved? Jesus says, woe to you. I mean, what does Jesus mean? 
It runs completely against what 95% of people in our society think. What does it mean to be truly blessed? Uh, well, before we get into the passage per se, we need to look at something of the context here. Who is, Jesus, who is this Jesus who is speaking and who is the audience that he is speaking to? Now, if you've uh, read Luke's gospel up to this point, you would have been struck by the person of Jesus. Uh, Luke writes as, as a doctor and he investigates into the true events that happened with Jesus. And in Luke chapters 1 and 2, the birth narratives, they emphasize that this Jesus is no ordinary man. He was none other than the Son of God who had come down into the world to save humanity from sin and to rule over an eternal kingdom forever. And in chapter 4, just a few chapters earlier, in Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke, Jesus declared, quoting from Isaiah in the Old Testament, I think we've got it up on the screen there, from Luke chapter 4, next slide, Jesus declares, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus declares, He is God's anointed king. He has come from God to rescue a people for himself, to save them from their sin, and create a whole new community of God centred around him. And if you were here last week, you would have seen he began with the 12 apostles, the new leadership for this new people of God. And so as Jesus speaks in this sermon here, he asks the question, What should characterize the lives of God's people? What does the king expect of his people? Well, if you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, we're at point 1 here, uh, the presence of the king. Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin reading from verse... Sorry, Luke chapter 6, beginning from verse 17. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you just look back a few verses earlier, we see Jesus was just up on the mountain and now uh, he's chosen his disciples, he's prayed and he comes down to a level place. Now, lots of people have speculated here. Is this our sermon we have here in Luke chapter 6, the same sermon as we have in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, or is it a different one? Now, there's all kinds of arguments to and fro that, which I find pretty convincing on both sides. To be honest, I don't think it really matters, right? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's one sermon or two, but the most important thing to look at as we look at the context to Jesus' sermon here is the audience who he is giving this sermon to. Uh, Do you notice uh, the three groups uh, that we have here in verse 17? He came down with with them, with with the 12 apostles, his his new chosen leadership for his new people. And then uh, he comes down, there's a great crowd of disciples, a, a wider group of disciples. And then finally, this great multitude from all Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and even from Sidon. See, Jesus' popularity has grown so much 
far and wide. People will come from every corner of Israel to hear Jesus speak. Uh, If you can find the map that's there, you can see that Jerusalem is over three days' journey away on the map. Yeah, the three days' journey away. You can see Jerusalem's way down the bottom there where the big star is. You look where Galilee is, all the way up the top. Three days' journey, more than 100 kilometres walking just to get there. And they all come to hear Jesus, to, to, to see him heal. Now we see why they come, don't we, in verse 18. Now they come to hear him and to be healed of all their diseases. Now, we have to remember here uh, that medicine wasn't so advanced in those days. If you got sick, even with a flu, that was a life-threatening situation. You were on the edge of death. No wonder they swarm. No wonder they will walk 100 kilometers just to see Jesus, desperate to be healed. And do you notice how Jesus responds there? second half of verse 18. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolute power to heal. Absolute sovereign control over evil. All the diseases, all the sicknesses that plague our world, that rob us, our li- rob us of our lives. Just a little touch on Jesus and instantly they are healed. Just imagine cancer in remission, dengue vanquished, paralytics walking. Just a moment, just a touch. No wonder the crowds flock to Jesus. I mean, you can just imagine if this happened here in KL. Uh, there'd be no more queues in GH. It'd be the first time ever you'd get straight in. The intensive care units would be empty. The drips would be left there dangling. There would be no more people left to heal. Jesus, miracles, show who he is. Here is the king. Come to his world to rule to save his people. He rules his universe with absolute power. And in his miracles, he gives a snapshot of what the coming kingdom he brings is going to look like. When he brings the kingdom, what will it be like? No more sickness. No more memorial services. No more pain. He will heal completely. Of course, that kingdom, as we will see, does not come straight away. And this is not our experience in the immediate right now. In fact, as Jesus will go on to show us, our experience right now is very different to that. But that is the life that Jesus' miracles testify to. When one day when he returns and his kingdom is established, this is what his kingdom will be like. And what a marvelous hope to look forward to. Whoever comes to Jesus is healed. Well, as we go on, we see that Christ is not satisfied with merely showing them who he is. He calls for a response. He calls for a radical response to their thinking and to their behavior. Have a look at verse 20. 
And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, do you notice who he speaks to here? To his disciples. This is not a sermon for, for outsiders. This is a sermon for his followers to show what real discipleship looks like. And we've noticed already how he divides people, divides his listeners into two camps. There'll be the true disciples who are blessed and there'll be the false disciples who are cursed. And the question this sermon leaves us this morning is which camp are we in? (laughs) The blessed or the cursed? Well, he begins with the blessed, the profile of the blessed, right? Point two and uh, verse 20. What do the blessed look like? Who does Jesus consider happy and contented? Well, it's not as we expect, is it? It isn't the person driving the Mercedes. It isn't the person living the comfortable life. It isn't the person with the happy family and the successful career and the big house. Now, do you notice what he says, verse 20? Blessed are you who are poor. 21, blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Uh, This teaching is just as revolutionary now as it was when Jesus first gave it. Uh, I mean, in Jesus' day, as in now, God's people would have thought the complete opposite. They would have thought that the people of verse 24 to 26 were the blessed ones, the rich, the full, the laughing, the popular. Now, if we just went back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 28, and we read all of the blessings and curses, the blessings for obedience, the curses for disobedience, what would we find? Well, the blessings for obedience were all these things. Wealth, health, prosperity. But you notice Jesus completely overturns that expectation. They may be all coming to Jesus for healing, but Jesus completely overturns what they are looking for. Real blessings, true blessings, true happiness will be found somewhere very different. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that riches are inherently evil and poverty is inherently good, as if we should all just try and be poor. I mean, anyone who has seen or experienced the hardship of poverty will tell you that it is a very, very, very unpleasant experience indeed and often too painful to bear. Jesus is not saying that. But neither is he saying that just because you are poor, you are automatically in God's kingdom. That's not right either. Uh, it, it's only as we look at the, at the context that we can get a feel for what Jesus is saying here. There's a rich Old Testament background that Jesus is drawing on as he says these particular words. And do you remember, we just looked at the start of the sermon, what Jesus said in the synagogue in that very first sermon. He quoted from Isaiah 61, and what did he say? I think we've got it on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, if we go back to Isaiah's time, who were the poor? Who were the captives? Who were the blind? Who were the oppressed? Well, it was the exiles, in fact. Those who had been taken away from Babylon, who had been taken into captivity when Jerusalem had been destroyed and the temple leveled to the ground. In exile, they had come to Babylon and there they were poor. There they wept over their sins. You just read it in Lamentations. There they were in terrible space. And yes, they were, they were poor on the outside, but they knew and they became aware that their poverty was much deeper than that. They became aware that they had abject spiritual poverty. The reason they were in exile at all was because of God's judgment upon their sin. And they knew so desperately their need for salvation. And so this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah gave them great hope. God would not abandon his poor captive people whom he had judged. No, he would send his Messiah. He would send his King. He would bring good news to those blessed poor and bring those sin-bound captives who depended on his King back into his kingdom where their fortunes would be restored. In short, who are the blessed poor? It is those who, despite their present conditions, trust in God's promises, grieve over their sin, and hope in his kingdom. Now, we need to remember here, when the time for the exiles to return to Jerusalem came in 539 BC, they didn't all go. Some prospered in Babylon. And when the time came to return, they didn't return. They stayed back in Babylon because they valued their money. They valued their society too much. They'd compromised with the world. They'd forgotten the promises. And they, they, they took worldly gain instead. And of this point, Luke will remind us again and again and again in his gospel. I mean, just think back to the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, the next slide. Do you remember the story? Uh, there's this rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And then there is this poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, whose desire, he decided to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table and no one gave him anything. Do you remember the story? What happened? The ultimate reversal. Lazarus carried to heaven and the rich man who ignored God burning in hell. Think of Luke 18. The rich young ruler, moral and upright, he comes to Jesus. He asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And do you remember Jesus' reply? He says, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what does he do? He goes away very sad because he was extremely rich. And so the poor disciples call out, 
What about us? If this rich, moral man cannot be saved, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. And what does Jesus say to them? Truly I say to you, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or fathers or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Again and again we see this reversal. In fact, it's all the way back there in Mary's song in chapter 1 as well. Chapter 1 verse 52 and 53. Mary sings and she says, He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Do you see this theme in Luke's gospel? The blessed poor who hope in God despite their circumstances. Well, they have hope in the kingdom. But the rich who do not hope in Christ... Well, their, their fortunes are reversed. So I think this passage forces us to ask the question this morning then. Have we realised our abject spiritual poverty before God? Have we realised the depths of our sin and our desperate need for King Jesus? Because if we have, it doesn't matter if we're poor or or hungry or weeping. It doesn't matter if we don't have all the physical comforts of life. If we are in Christ, if we have realized our sin and put our hope in him, what does Jesus say? You are blessed. You are happy. You are content. Why? Because like Lazarus, like the disciples, we too will be able to enter God's kingdom and enjoy his rich blessing for eternity. Do you see how that happens in the passage here before us? How God turns their fortunes around. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall last. Do you see the, the, the real blessing is not the immediate physical things that we have in this world now. Jesus says the real blessing to look for is a place in God's coming kingdom. The real blessed are those who take hold of God's promises, who put their hope in Christ and hope in him, and they will be blessed. Have you done it? Maybe today that you've come here as a non-Christian, you've been invited with your friend. Have you put your hope in Christ? Have you trusted in him? Well, look what a dramatic change of perspective this should bring to our life if we are disciples of Jesus. Have a look at verse 20. Sorry, 22. Isn't it remarkable? Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil 
on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus sets out expectations of what we disciples should expect in life. We're not to expect a smooth, a smooth ride in the Christian life. What are we to expect? Hatred, exclusion, slander for being a follower of Jesus. So again, let me ask you the question, are, are you being persecuted for trusting in Jesus? Do, do your parents say to you, why are you spending so much time in church? Shouldn't you be building your career? Do your colleagues say to you, why are you so stupid for following Jesus, wasting all this time on church stuff? Are you mocked by your friends or your family for being a Christian? Are we being oppressed by the government for following Christ? Oh, if that is happening to us, what should be our response? We should rejoice. Leap for joy. It's, it's like if you've seen those uh, football matches, the extravagant celebrations of the players when they do something like kicking a little ball into a, into a round net. Uh, they leap, they, they cry, they scream, they strip off their clothes, they, anything they will do to celebrate. Just one goal. And Jesus says, if we belong to Christ... Even if we suffer, even when we suffer, even when we're persecuted, what should be our response? Rejoice. Leap for joy. Be happy. Why? Because we know if we are Jesus, one of Jesus' people, we have a place in his kingdom. And as we've seen, we know what that glorious kingdom will be like a place of no more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. Our temporary sufferings will be nothing at all compared to that wonderful and glorious day. So friends, if this is your experience, the bank account is running a bit low. If you don't know where the next meal is coming from, there's pressure from family overwhelming you if life is more pain than pleasure then be encouraged if you are in Christ if you are trusting in Jesus you are truly blessed you are truly happy you can rejoice and leap for joy because you a part of his glorious kingdom. Well, brings us finally to point three, the priorities of the false disciple. The priorities of the false disciple. I see Jesus begins this uh, sermon in chapter six, not only with the blessings, isn't it? He comes now to the curses, to the woes, and the important woes for us to be warned by. Have a look at verse 23, sorry, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn 
and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, do you notice again who the warning is directed to? It's still to you, isn't it? To the disciples. And it's a very strong warning to us as disciples. Do not be, be like those who are living on the outside of the kingdom. Do not make your values the same as their values. Because if you do, beware. Woe to you, false disciple. Jesus wants us to see again in the strongest possible terms the dangers of wealth. Now again, let me say, it's not that riches in and of themselves are bad. If you are a rich person here today, the riches are not in and of themselves bad. I mean, we look at Zacchaeus a bit later in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel. He was a very rich man, and he became a disciple of Jesus. Salvation came to him, although not without him giving away half of his money to the poor, plus more. But Jesus wants us to see here the danger of wealth. He wants us to see how desperately dangerous it is. The problem with wealth is that it so can easily foster that attitude that we do not need God. It fosters that attitude of proud independence where we think that we can just live life by ourselves, enjoy all the comforts of now and not give a second thought to God in our life. Jesus warns that kind of attitude can only end up in one place, and that is destruction. Again, let's think of another story in Luke's Gospel, this time the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Do you remember the story? He has a massive harvest, and so he says to himself, what shall I do? I'll build bigger barns and bigger barns. There I'll store all of my grain. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what does God say to him? You fool. This very night your soul is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, wealth is not what our world is all about. Our world thinks it is. Constantly upgrading our houses, buying new cars, buying new gadgets, seeing, trying to get success in our careers so that we can become more wealthy and therefore more secure. Even in some churches, this kind of thinking is propagated, isn't it? It's what we call the prosperity gospel. That if you just have enough faith in Jesus, he's going to give you all your dreams. He's going to make you wealthy, healthy, prosperous, successful, whether it's a house or a car or career or whatever your dream is, he will give it to you if only you put your faith in Jesus. And Jesus warns in the strongest possible terms Such an attitude to money can only leave you in one place, and that is destruction. 
Such an attitude has no place in the life of the disciple. When the kingdom comes, a huge reversal will take place. Uh, We saw that a little bit in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 65. Here's a, a short snippet of it. God says to his people, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. The new heavens and the new earth will come. God's Messiah will bring it in and his servants will enjoy it. This wonderful place, but for those who do not come to the Messiah, what is their fate? Well, their fortunes are turned. They lose everything. They end up in destruction. So again, let me ask the question. What does your bank account show about your Christian life? Not very politically correct to say Most people don't want to disclose their bank accounts, isn't it? See that on the news. Where is your hope, really? This world? Are you still chasing for security in this world? Really? Or are you living for the world to come? For that glorious kingdom that Jesus is bringing? Are you honouring God with your money or are you honouring money as your God? Jesus tells us here, if you pin your hope on the riches of this world and so compromise your relationship with Jesus, beware. Because this life And all its meager pleasures is all that you will have. For when Jesus returns, it will all be taken away. And you will face his judgment. What does your bank account show about your Christian life? Well, finally, let's consider the final word there in verse 26. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's another sign of false discipleship, isn't it? Where we crave for popularity, we crave for acceptance, we want other people to speak well of us. Uh, I know this personally, this is something that I always struggle with. Just this week I was teaching a a Bible class at another, another church here in KL, and uh, we were looking at Deuteronomy, the blessings and curses, and so we ha- had to talk about the prosperity gospel and why that is a wrong reading of that. But the temptation was, as I was preparing and as I stood up to, to teach the class in this church that openly preaches the prosperity gospel every week, what would I say? Would I just tell them what they wanted to hear so they'd be happy with me, accept me? Or would I say the truth, knowing full well I might not be invited back the next time? 
Jesus says, seeking popularity at the expense of God's gospel is like commending a false prophet. False disciples care more about what the world thinks out there than what Jesus says. So again, let me ask you, what will you do when your parents start telling you, oh, you're being too serious with this whole Christian thing? Don't you think you should think a little bit more about your future? Build your career? What are you going to do? Keep trying to win their approval? Win their pleasure? Or seek God's approval? Seek Jesus' approval? When your colleagues ask you to stay back overtime at work yet again on the night of Bible study, Thursday night, I guess, what are you going to do? Seek their approval, fit in the team, not let them down, or seek God's approval? Please, God, what are you going to do? When our world is obsessed with this same-sex marriage thing, How are you going to respond? Are you going to seek the world's approval? Try and be more tolerant? Tell people what they want to hear? Or are you going to seek to please God? Make a stand for the truth, even though for sure it will mean that you will be hated, you will be slandered, you will be excluded. What are you going to do? I think these kind of situations, again, expose where our true priorities lie. Are we really there living and hoping in Jesus and his kingdom? Or are we just out here to save our own skin, to secure our immediate future, to secure a happy passage through this life? Well, it's a real test, isn't it? of where, whether we are true disciples of the king or false disciples of the king. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, I don't know how you're feeling as we've gone through this sermon. (laughs) Could it be an immense encouragement to you in your situation? I hope it has been. But it may have been a great rebuke to you as well. may have really made you think where you stand with Jesus. Well, if that is you, there is good news at the end. (laughs) Because really the truth is, isn't it, all of us, Everyone in this room has compromised at some point in our Christian life. There's always, for every one of us, been a point where we've trusted in in our money instead of Jesus, where we've longed for physical blessings instead of for the kingdom, where we've longed for approval from men instead of God. There's that would have happened to every one of us in this room, me included. But the good news is there was one, isn't it? who perfectly fulfilled all of this, one who embodied the blessings without fault and never fell into the curses 
I'm, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just think of what Jesus did for us. He left the glories of heaven and he became poor that we might become rich. He went hungry in the desert as he was obedient to his father. He wept in Gethsemane as he feared the wrath of his father. He was rejected and reviled by his own people. He was abandoned by his own family. And finally, he was crucified as a criminal on that cruel Roman cross. Jesus doesn't just preach these words. He practiced it every step to the end. And the wonderful news is, because he did that, because he was faithful to God every step of the way, well, he opened that path into God's kingdom, isn't it? He opened the way to forgiveness. He opened the way for us to be blessed. If we turn and put our faith in Christ, if we hope in him and his kingdom alone, well, truly we are blessed. We are happy. We will share in his glorious kingdom. So as we finish, let me ask you this. What are you living for? What do you value in life? Where is your heart set? Are you after present rewards, security, riches, pleasure, popularity? Or is your heart set somewhere else on that future reward? Something far, far better. A place with Christ in his kingdom. Right now, are you, are you chasing the things of this world? Or are you willing to rejoice when all those things are absent, knowing that you have something far, far better? Jesus challenges us here. True disciples are to be radically different to the world. Whatever you do, don't be jealous of those who seem to be doing well in life, but they're not in Christ. It will not end well for them. Do not be jealous of them. And whatever you do, don't join them in living for the moment. Being Jesus' disciple means humbly depending on him through poverty, through rejection, through persecution, through pain, rejoicing in him and his kingdom. We have the hope of eternal life. Whatever you do, do not forsake Jesus for anything else in this world. Keep following in his steps the one who went to the cross for us so that we can hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious Son, the King of this world who rules with absolute power and authority, full of compassion and kindness. And we thank you for his encouragement and his warning to us this morning to rethink 
the blessed life. Father, we pray for every one of us that you would help us to hope not in the things of this world, in riches, in security, in popularity, in pleasure. Help us to trust in Christ and to hope in his kingdom, even if it means poverty and persecution and pain. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of difficulty, we can be truly happy, truly contented, truly blessed. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that he went to the cross so that all of these blessings could be ours. So help us to follow in his steps, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.